Well, that's great singing tonight and a great time of worship, good selection of gospel songs and uh, new ones and old ones, and I like that. I always say that we don't need a whole generation coming behind us not knowing the old hymns. We sang Blessed Assurance last night. That's my favorite hymn. And young people ought to know that hymn. And uh, it is well with my soul and others. And then I always also say that the old people need to learn the new songs. And you know who you are. So I don't like to learn a new song. Well, you better get used to it. You're going to sing a new song when you get to heaven. That's what the Bible says. We're going to sing a new song. And so I enjoy this. It's a good church, a good spirit. I love coming here and the people that Tim Mile, always so gracious, so kind. My wife said it's a friendly church. And people are looking for friendliness. And People come to church, and uh, if they're treated mean and unkind, they're probably not going to come back. And uh, they've already had that six days of the week and uh, run off the road and cussed out and chewed out at work and all kinds of other problems. So when they come to church, they ought to find a people that's happy and joyful and loving Jesus. Amen? That's for sure. And uh, some of uh, my most favorite people in the world are here tonight. My Aunt Marilyn, wave at me, Aunt Marilyn. My dad's youngest sister. And uh, then my Uncle Robert, wave at me, Uncle Robert. I love this guy. He helped build this church. I was here. I walked him many times and many days. And uh, then, uh, do I have any other cousins here other than Betty Lou? Any other cousins other than Betty all right, this is my favorite cousin right here, Betty Lou. <laughs> Wave at me, Betty Lou. I love this girl, i tell you what. She is fun to be around. And uh, so, uh, do I have any other relatives here tonight? Anybody else claim me, I should say? Anyone else at all? My wife, I introduced, did I introduce you yesterday, hon? Yeah, I introduced you yesterday. And... Um, Anybody else claim me? All right. Well, I claimed all of you, and I'm glad you're here. I met some I went to school with. They always have to tell me who they are. They change. I, I'm in a wheelchair. It's easy to recognize me, all right? But uh, it's uh, when you haven't been around people for 30, 35 years, 40 years, and you have to be reminded and I don't play the name game. If you say, do you know me? I'm going to, if I don't know you, I'm going to say, no, I'm sorry. You're going to have to tell me who you are. And, uh, but I love you and appreciate you. Appreciate your pastor. And God sent you a choice man of God. When he sent Jacob Gray here to be the pastor at Ten Mile Baptist Church. You've had some great pastors in the past, but God sent you one of his choice. And I heard uh, the message that you preached at the Illinois State Convention, I guess it was. Is that what that's called? Illinois Baptist? That was stirring things up right there. That's what you did. You stirred things up. <laughs> Preachers ought to stir things up once in a while. Amen? Amen. And uh, 
You say, well, I don't like controversy. Well, you probably wouldn't have liked hanging around Jesus all that much. He was so controversial, they hung him on a cross, crucified him. And so uh, this, uh, this uh, truth of this book right here is sometimes controversial. And uh, we need preachers to get in the pulpit and preach it like it is to people the way they are, without fear, without favor, and without apology. Truth is truth. Everyone needs to hear the truth. All, all of us need to hear the truth. I made up my mind years ago that no matter who would come to hear me preach, I would preach the same truth to everybody. And I've had the privilege to preach to uh, numbers of United States senators and congressmen and judges, mayors of all sizes of cities, and I promise you, I preach the same truth to them that I preach to you. And um, I was in Peoria, Illinois, years ago, about 1,400 people there on a weeknight, and Congressman Robert Michael was sitting on the front row at that time, he was the minority leader of the House of Representatives. And uh, supposed to have been a conservative, but it dawned on me right during my message, I was preaching on America and what was going on in our country, and it dawned on me right, do you ever have something just dawn on you? It dawned on me that the very next week in Congress, they were going to vote on a prayer amendment to allow our school children to pray in school. And so I looked, I stopped and I looked at the congressman. I said, sir, I don't understand why it's okay for Congress to open each day that they're in session in prayer. And then I don't understand why it's okay for the Supreme Court to open up each session that they're in in prayer. And I don't understand why it's okay for the president to have a presidential prayer breakfast. And yet our school children are allowed to pray. And they, uh, they gave me a standing ovation right in the middle of my message. People stood up clapping. And, well, I found out afterwards that he was against the prayer amendment. But, hey, it didn't make any difference. He still needed to hear the truth. And um, so I, I, you know, I, I respect the, uh, the office. I pray for our president that's in office right now. It's God commands us that we're to pray for those who are in positions of authority. I pray for President Trump, and I pray for President Biden. And sometimes I may pray for them in different ways, but I pray for them. I really do. And uh, we should pray for those in authority. All right, take your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 1. 2 Timothy, chapter number 1. I'm going to speak to you for a little while tonight on a word that is almost forgotten in our English vocabulary. The word commitment. Commitment. It's a, almost a forgotten word. One in two marriages in America end up in a divorce. The, the ratio is not that high in the church. I know people have told us that, but it's not. But nevertheless, it's high enough that we should be alarmed. Last year, over 4,000 Baptist preachers threw in the towel. They quit preaching. And now 
There's, that was in 2019. Now there's more discouragement than ever in the ministry. I want to tell you folks, there's ever a time when you need to pray for your pastor is now. There's so much pressure and so many things that are going on in this world and so many decisions that have to be made. And uh, the preachers are easily sometimes discouraged and they quit. They throw it in the towel. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says here to young Timothy about this word. Let me begin reading in verse number 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 6. Wherefore, let me get my cheater glasses out. How many of you know that the last time I was here, I wasn't wearing these? You remember that? Anybody at all? I wasn't wearing these. I had LASIK surgery uh, 20 years ago, maybe. Was it 20 years ago, Connie? Maybe 20 years ago. And it worked perfect. And they told me it might last for about 20 years. Guess what? I got my money's worth. Now I'm back to these things. And and I don't like them, but I have to wear them. So anyhow, stay with me. Verse number six, wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Boy, this is a great verse for today. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Paul's talking here about himself. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Do you know who you have believed tonight? He said, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith, and love which is in Christ Jesus. In verse number 14, we see the word again, that good thing which was committed unto thee by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. John Maxwell said, ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ can make an extraordinary impact in their world. Listen to that again. Ordinary people. I count myself as an ordinary people. Ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments under the Lordship of Jesus Christ can make an extraordinary impact in their world. Commitment. 
those of us who are old enough and were around on 9-11 and we saw those vivid images as it was happening. There, especially in those two burning buildings in New York City. I have a friend that is an evangelist now that was in the North Tower on the 87th floor, I believe. It's a miracle he's alive. But that day we saw levels of commitment that is very seldom seen firsthand. We hear about levels of commitment after they've happened, things that have happened. But this, and I, I love reading stories of, of men in our military who have received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest medal that can be awarded in our military, and go back and read those stories. And I have friends that, I've, that I personally know that, that have received the Medal of Honor, and their stories will blow you away, the levels of commitment. But that day in New York City, there were two buildings that were burning, had been attacked by the enemy, and they were on fire on the verge of collapse that we didn't know it at the time. But there were thousands and thousands of people who were going down the stairs. Sue Joe John was that one I was telling you about. He was a, he was a businessman and had came here from India legally and became a citizen of America legally. I don't mind people coming to this country from other countries. If I live in some of them other countries, I might be trying to come here too. But two things I've got to say about that. If you're going to come to America, do it legally. And number two, if you get here and you decide you don't like it, then go back where you came from. You say, Tim, you're supposed to love everybody. I know it, but I'm not perfect. All right. Are we having fun yet? And uh, that day, as there were thousands of people who were coming down, there were others who were going up, firemen, some of them with as much as 100 pounds of equipment strapped on their back, policemen and emergency workers. Hardly a word was spoken between the two groups of people that day, but hardly a word had to be spoken as those that were going up were saying to those who were coming down, if needs be, I will give my life so you can have your life. And that day, over 330 firemen gave their lives. Over 60 policemen and emergency workers gave their lives. Commitment. Let me give you a word tonight that before, I want you to go ahead and find Daniel chapter 3 because we're going to look at one of the greatest stories of commitment in all the Bible here in just a moment. But let me give you a word that goes with this word commitment. At first, it's going to sound negative, but I'll show you at the end of my message in just a few moments why it's anything but negative. But if you become a person of deep commitment in your Christian life, the world is not going to understand it may be possible that your friends will not understand, and it may be possible that some of your own family will not even understand. If you become this person of deep, deep commitment to the things of God in your Christian life as an ordinary person, making these simple spiritual commitments under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the world won't understand. Maybe that your friends won't understand. Possibly even your own family won't understand. And you will find yourself alone. But it's nothing new. 
All through the Bible, you find people of deep commitment, and they too found themselves alone. Noah built an ark and warned his generation all alone. Elijah prophesied and wept alone. Daniel prayed alone. Jonah went to Nineveh alone. Paul stood before King Nero alone. John on the Isle of Patmos alone. And Jesus hung on a cross and suffered and bled and died all alone. And if you become this person, and you're serious about it, and you're not playing church, and you're not playing games with God, and you sell out, and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell out my life to God. I'm going to live for him the rest of the days of my life. God's going to honor that. God's going to bless that. And a lot of people's going to love you for that. But there may be some people who won't. This world is not God's friend. This world doesn't love your Jesus. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But let me give you, before we go on to Daniel, let me give you another word that goes with this word commitment tonight. It's the word motivation. Hey, if you're going to become a person of deep commitment in your Christian life, you're going to have to get motivated. And I'll tell you up front that I cannot get motivated for you. Your pastor cannot get motivated for you. We might say words of encouragement to cause you to want to be motivated, but if you get motivated, it's going to be your decision. Your wife can't make it for you. Your husband can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. You've got to make the commitment. You've got to make the decision. I joined the United States Marine Corps in 1969. I actually thought that when I left the recruiter's office, I actually thought that I was a Marine. Well, I found out in boot camp, you're a lot of things, but you're not a Marine. When you get to boot camp, they take everything away from you that has anything to do with civilian life. They take all your civilian clothing, everything, your belt, your socks, your underwear, everything, and they ship it home to mama. And they issue you all military clothing. You get everything military. And it's all uniform. Everyone's alike. Well, if you're a smoker, that was when I was there. I'm not sure how it is today, but when I was there, if you were a smoker, they took your cigarettes away from you. You were not allowed to smoke to about the fifth or sixth week of boot camp. We're talking about cold turkey here. It was about the fourth week of boot camp, and I was told by my drill instructor to take four other recruits of myself over to the dental office and have some work done, and then to come back to squad bay. We'd go directly there, have the work done, come directly back. We went over, we had the work done, we're on our way back to squad bay, and one of those guys in that little detail spoke up, and he said, do any of you smoke? It just so happened that all five of us were smokers. And I'm not for sure where he got them from. I imagine he stole them at the dental office. We didn't really care where he got them from. We just glad he had them. We pulled over into a clump of trees at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, South Carolina, and we lit up the smoking lamp, and we were having one more smoking party. Out of all the drill instructors at Paris Island, our own drill instructor caught us. Skinny Sergeant Lunford. 
He was the meanest drill instructor on that base. You say, Tim, you didn't know all the other drill instructors. I didn't have to know all of them. I'm telling you, he was the meanest. He went berserk. He started jumping up and down. He's flailing his hands in the air. He was saying words I had never heard before. I got, I, he's, I talk about him in my book, Born on the 5th of July. I got an email from his daughter. And she, somebody had sent her the book and, about her daddy. And we had a great conversation. I sent her several of the books to give to some of her relatives. She was blown away that I'd honored her dad in the book. But what she doesn't realize is I was telling the truth about her daddy. He was mean. They kept telling us they were going to kick us out of the Marines. Now, they weren't going to kick us out, but they had us believing they were going to. When we got back to Squad Bay, Gunnery Sergeant Fortner came out. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do with these five. We will send them to one-day motivation. I'd never heard of that, but I was getting ready to get introduced to it. They pulled us out of the rack at 4.30 in the morning. There were a bunch of other recruits from other platoons that had messed up. I think there were probably about 80 of us all together. And they told us we're going on a 20-mile mark. I've never been on 20 mile anything unless it was in an automobile. I ran track in high school, but I was a short distance man, 20 miles. They didn't march us, they ran us. And I'm telling you, there was not one, didn't matter what kind of great physical condition you were in, every one of us were falling out on the ground, sicker than dogs. Finally, at noon hour, we stopped to eat. They gave us a box of sea rations. I had never seen a box of sea rations before. I was used to mama's home cooking. And they gave us a little contraption called, how many of you guys know what a P-38 is? Hold up your hand. I'd never seen one of them dumb things in my life. I couldn't figure it out. I was used to mama's big can opener. And, and I took that thing fine. They told us we had 10 minutes to eat. I finally got a can of peanut butter open enough to get two fingers in and get some peanut butter out, handed it to my buddy, and he got some out, and then we were off. At 2.30 in the afternoon, they marched us up in front of this huge ditch. And they told us we would get from this side of the ditch to the other side, maybe from here to the back doors. And we would get, now that wouldn't have been so bad getting across the ditch, except for the fact it was a sewage ditch. That's what we said. Now, have you ever been in a situation that was not funny, but you got to laughing anyhow? There was nothing funny about it. We're up to the middle of our waist in this stuff, and we're out laughing our full heads off. All of a sudden, bullets are whizzing over the top of our heads. I'd heard about these drill instructors. I thought one of them had lost the presence of his mind, was trying to kill us all. Well, they weren't shooting at us. They were going 30 feet over the top of our head, but we didn't know that. All of a sudden, we weren't laughing anymore. We were ducking down and getting across the ditch. They got us back to squad bay and they told us to clean up, and then they brought us down, us five at platoon 305, in front of the entire platoon. And skinny Sergeant Lunford, he came over and he started with me first. Reason we called him Skinny Lunford, he had a 29-inch waist. And when we would run, we would get out and run. Uh, he, everything we were running forward, he could run backwards. He is so, so, so great a shape. He came over and he started with me. He put his nose right next to my nose, and he looked in my eyeball. And he said, he said, maggot, he called me a maggot. He said, are you motivated? At the top of my lungs, I said, yes, sir, sir, yes, sir. He said, 
I, he said, give me 20 push-ups. I gave him 25. I stood back up, my feet out of 45 degree angles, my shoulders square back, my eyeballs looking straight ahead. He came over, he put his nose next to my nose and looked in my eyeballs. He said, hog? He called me a hog. He said, are you motivated? Hey, I had never been so motivated in all my life. That was toward the end of the week. And the very first part of the next week, I made what was called platoon guide. Platoon guide was the honored position of the platoon. Carried the colors of the platoon. I never relinquished that position to the day I graduated. You want to know why? I was motivated. Right in the middle of boot camp, I went to my drill instructor. I said, I don't want to be a reservist. I joined the United States Marine Corps Reservist. Nobody pulled any strings for me. David Hutchcraft from Dalgren and I, we joined together under the buddy system. He stayed in the reserves. I told the, the drill instructor, I was motivated, man. I said, I don't want to be a reservist. I want to be a full-time Marine. He said, I don't know if we can do that. We, I don't think we've ever had anybody make that request. They went, they got it done, brought back the paperwork. I became a full-time Marine. And, and I graduated from boot camp with a meritorious promotion from private to private first class. I was motivated. Engineering school, three months later, graduated with another meritorious promotion, private first class, the Lance Corporal. I was motivated. In Vietnam, made Marine of the Month in my battalion. I was motivated. I was going to go to embassy school. I was going to be a career Marine. That was what my life was. God had other plans, but you know why you don't ever call a Marine an ex-Marine? Isn't any such thing. Once a Marine, always a Marine. You know why? We are motivated. You say, Tim, there's got to be a good reason why you told us all that. Oh, there's a great reason. You know what some of you good Baptists need to do tonight? You need to go to one day motivation. Yeah. You've been sitting in your church pew for so long thinking that was your service to God. That's not service to God. Doesn't take motivation to come in and sit down in a seat. Matter of fact, we don't even come here to serve God. We come here to worship God. We come here to praise him and lift him high. When you leave here and you drive off of the property, then you're in the mission field. Now you're going to serve him. Go to the book of Daniel, chapter number three. Let me paraphrase the story. There's a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Neb, King Neb. Neb's got a ego bigger than the Empire State Building. This guy is full of himself. And he has been listening to his people and they have been bragging on him so much. And now he's going to declare a day that they're going to worship the king. They built a statue 90 foot tall. Nine foot wide is made out of gold. Hey, that's impressive in anybody's mind. A statue 90 foot tall, nine foot wide. I don't know how tall that tallest part of the ceiling. I'm just guessing 45, 50 feet. Maybe, I don't know, but this thing's 90 feet, nine foot wide, and it's made out of gold. And then they're going to have a big day, and the big day's going all the leaders are going to be, the governors are coming, the sheriffs are coming, the treasurers are coming, all the rulers of the province are coming. And they're all going to bow. When they hear the musical instruments played, they're all going to bow and worship the king and his, and his image, this golden statue. And they've been given orders, everyone is to bow when they hear the music played. You know what this is on the part of this king? It's an act of intimidation. Young people, listen to me tonight. 
The devil is an intimidator. The devil is a liar. The devil is a deceiver. The devil does not play fair. In football season in NFL, and I don't even watch anymore. If they don't have time to stand for the flag, then I don't have time to watch them play football. That's just me. I'm not mad at you if you do, but I'm not. And um, even my Cowboys, I, I love my Dallas Cowboys, but if they're not going to stand for the flag, then I'm not going to watch them play football. But they, the most expensive commercials are your beer commercials. They have the most beautiful women. They have the most beautiful animals. They always have these macho men, and they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars. But if they believed in truth and advertisement, when that 60-second ad was over, there would be another 60-second ad. It would go something like this. There's a guy sitting in a bar in northern Kentucky across the river from Cincinnati. And he's been drinking all afternoon. He's drunk. He's so drunk. He stumbles out to his pickup truck. He's going to drive himself home, but he's drunk. He gets on the interstate, but the bad part about it is he's going the wrong way. There's a church bus full of a assembly of God teenagers. They've been to Kings Island for a activity, church activity, and they're headed back. And no doubt they've had a good time and maybe they've had a lot of laughs. Maybe there's been some singing on the bus. I don't know. But all of a sudden, the drunk going the wrong way on the interstate hits the bus and it bursts into flames. And that, that night, 34 teenagers went out into eternity in a burning inferno because of a drunk driver. Hey, they're not going to show you that ad. You know why? Because then you won't drink their light beer. You won't think it's cool. The devil's a liar. Well, this day comes, and then all these leaders fall down, and they begin to worship the, the king and this, this golden image, but there's three that day that didn't bow. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. I want to ask you a question. Don't you think they had to feel somewhat alone? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are bowing. But they're not. I noticed one basketball team in the NCAA, I don't even remember what team it was, every single player on that team knelt during the national anthem, except for one guy. Thank God for his courage. Sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand and say, I don't care what the crowd says, I'm going to do what's right. And don't you imagine, I told you a while ago, your world won't understand, your friends won't understand, maybe your family won't understand, you'll be alone. But not only will you be alone, look if you would, Daniel chapter 3 and verse number 13. The tatter tales have went and told on these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now the king is angry. Look at verse 13. The, ne the Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then they brought these men before the king. Not only will you be alone, but you've got to understand people will get angry with you. When you become this person of deep commitment, you say, I'm going to live for Jesus. Maybe there's a young man here tonight, and God's calling you to preach. And God wants you to be a preacher of the gospel. Maybe someday to be a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary. Oh, your pastor's going to be happy for you. I'm going to be excited and pat you on the back. But not everybody. Some people are going to try to throw cold water on you and try to discourage you. And even some people might get angry with you. 
I've met presidents of this country and other countries as well, but every time I ever met one of them, they're always super cordial, very friendly, very, very nice, every one of them. But this king is angry. His king is mad. His king is upset. Folks, we hear more and more and more of these words. I started telling people this 20 years ago. They started using the word diversity and the words inclusive. But here's what they mean. They want you to be more and more diverse. They want you to be more and more inclusive. But they have no intention of being inclusive and diverse toward you and toward your Christianity and toward your Bible and toward your Jesus. I was invited to speak at Camp Lejeune, the largest Marine base population-wise, and, and it was, the invitation came before 9-11, so when 9-11 happened, I figured they would cancel it, but they were more determined than ever. Out of 43 chaplains on that base, all of them but three signed on for our crusade. We were there for three days. I spoke five and six times a day. Sometimes it'd be 20 or 30, and sometimes it'd be 1,000 or more. And then we had services every night. And it was the week of the Marine Corps birthday, and I was invited to be the guest speaker at the breakfast. All the top brass of the base were going to be there. Chaplain Mozam was a head chaplain, a Southern Baptist chaplain, a great man, loves God, a, a, a soul winner, and, and a, a Bible-believing uh, chaplain. And we'd had several conversations before the event, always very cordial, always very nice. He's a super great guy. But one day he called me about two weeks before the deal, and he said, now, he said, now, Reverend Lee said, you are our keynote speaker for the prayer breakfast. But he said, before you speak, we have a Jewish rabbi who's going to pray and say a few words. And then we have a Muslim cleric, and he's going to say a few words and pray. And he said, now, Reverend Lee, we don't want to offend anyone. I said, look, Chaplain Mozan, call those other two guys back and tell them not to worry about offending me at all. Oh, yes, I did. Hey, why are they always worried about the other guy for? You know whose faith is under attack in America today? It's the Christian faith. It's open season on Christians. You can tell jokes about Christians. You can harass Christians. But that's why I'm here to tell you tonight, church, this isn't the time to be backing up. This isn't the time to be apologizing. This isn't the time to be taking it easy. This is the time to be who and what God intended for us to be, to be the salt and to be the light that God intended for us to be. Not only will you be alone, not only will they get angry, but then look at verse 14. They would begin to ask questions. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true? Hey, folks, he knew it was true. But in asking this question a little bit, he's going to give them a chance to compromise. He said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not you serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. He's got a lot of questions, but he doesn't have any answers. But friend, this is what will happen when you become this person of deep commitment in your Christian life. They will begin to ask questions. And you know what the main question is? They want to know if what you say you have is real. And they don't want to know if what you say you have is real when everything's going great. When you got plenty of money in the bank. When all your bills are paid when the doctor's giving you a clean bill of health, 
when your children are all behaving. They don't want to know if everything's going great when things are good. They want to know how your Christianity is going to stand the test when the bottom falls out. When the doctor says it's terminal. When, when your granddaughter is killed suddenly in a horrible ATV accident. Then they want to know how your faith is going to stand the test. I've seen it happen so many times. People have tragedy come in their life. Instead of turning to God and leaning on God, they get angry at God. They get mad at God. And they, they leave the church and they, and, and, they, and they turn away from God. That's the worst thing you can do when problems come in your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not a matter of if trials are going to come. The Bible says in, in, in um, 1 Peter chapter 4, I believe it is, that Think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you. It's not a matter of if they're coming, they're coming. It's a matter of how you're going to stand when they do come. What are you going to do then? I looked at the front row of my granddaughter's homegoing service and my daughter, Jana, Allie's mama, and we were singing that song. Is it well with thee that we... What was the song, honey? Say it out loud. You don't remember either. You remember? Okay. But I looked down and my daughter had her hands raised toward the heavens, tears streaming down her face, lifting her hands to God. And I knew then that my daughter would be okay. The worst thing you can do is turn your back on God. When the things happened that you weren't expecting. They will question you. They want to know if what you say is real. And then the last thing tonight. Look at verse number 15. They'll give you an opportunity to acquiesce. They'll give you an opportunity to compromise. Just because you win one great victory in your life doesn't mean the devil's going to leave you alone. Look at verse number 15. This is the king speaking. Now, if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, all these other musical instruments, you fall down and worship the image which I have made. In other words, he's given them a second chance. And God is a God of a second chance, but I got news for you. The devil's the devil of a second chance. He won't. You come to the altar and you get a great victory in your life. That doesn't mean the devil's going to leave you alone. He may not come back at you at that angle. He says, he says, when you hear these music limits, you fall down and worship them, he says, well, he said, if you do it, everything's okay. But then he issues them the ultimate threat. But if ye worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And listen to this. And who is that God that should deliver you out of my hands? He's angry. And he's talking like an antichrist. He's talking like Pharaoh when Moses said, let the people go. And Pharaoh said, I don't know the Lord. Neither will I let the people go. And he said, who is this God? He's fixing to find out who this God is. 
I heard evangelist Lester Olaf say years ago that one of the most dangerous times in the life of a Christian is when you've just won a great victory. Why is that? Because if you're not careful, you'll get a little cocky. you get a little arrogant. Maybe even puffed up. And you kind of begin to feel invincible. And then the devil comes at you from another angle and pulls the rug out from underneath you. So the devil will give you an opportunity to acquiesce, to give in. So how do they respond? This is the good part of the story. Are you still with me? If you're still with me, say amen. amen. So you're still with me. That's good. Look at verse number 17. They answered the king. Let me get my page ready to turn. Many of you know that I had a stroke uh, was a year ago, I guess it was, in September. And while I was preaching in uh, near the Atlanta area, and the only residual effect, my finger on my right hand and my thumb doesn't work as good as it used to work. But I'm an old man besides that, so stay with me, all right? Some of you are old too, just stay with me. Verse 17, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego speaking. If it be so, our God, I like that, our God, not your God, king, our God, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, I talked about this last night. You say, Tim, is that a lack of faith? I don't think so. I think they're saying our God is able to deliver us, will deliver us, but it doesn't even matter, King. If he chooses not to deliver us, we're still not going to bow down to you. We're still not going to worship you. They knew that God had said you're to have no other God before the true and the living God. They knew that. But if not, be it known to the king, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou set up. Now, if you think the king Neb was mad in verse 13, look at verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visions was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This guy is mad. This guy is beside himself. And therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Do you see how angry this dude is? I don't want just a regular fire. That would have killed him right there. It was human flesh. That would burn it up right there. I don't want one two times as hot. I don't want one three times as hot. I want a fire seven times hotter than it's ever been before. So they've thrown people in the fire furnace before. This isn't the first time. He's mad. And look at what happens. Look at what happens. After a while, the king gets up, and he goes over, and he looks in. This fire is so hot, young people, that some of the king's personal guards lost their lives when they threw Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the furnace. They were killed by the heat of the fire. In verse number 21, then these men were bound in their coats, their hose, their hats, and their other garments were cast into the midst of burning fire furnace. And therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, the furnace was exceeding hot. 
the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. After a while, the fire has died down. And King Neb gets up, and he goes over to look into the furnace. Now, why would he do that? If you got a furnace seven times hotter than it's ever before, what are you looking at? What are you looking for? There shouldn't be anything left, right? But he goes over and he looks back at some of his people. He says, the Bible says he was astonished. I'll bet he was. He says to his people, didn't we throw three in? What's the matter, king? Can't you count? One, two, three. A, B, C. Little kindergarten kid gets three. If, he, if they throw them 30 or 40 of them in there real fast, we could understand how he might have got off count. They threw three in. He says, there's not three. There's four. And the fourth is the image of the Son of God. You say, Tim, how in the world would he ever know what Jesus looked like? If you ever seen Jesus face to face, won't anybody have to tell you who he is? You'll know who he is. Here they are. I told you a while ago that word alone sounds negative, but it was that I proved to you that it wasn't. Here they are in the deepest, darkest trial of their entire life, and who's with them? None other than the Lord Himself. Ladies and gentlemen, the world will turn their back on you. Your friends may turn your back on you. Your own family may turn their back on you. He'll never turn his back on you. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He's there in the good times. He's there in the bad times. He's there in the daytime. He's there in the nighttime. He's on the mountaintop. He's in the valley. He said, oh, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He'll never leave you. In your worst trial that you could ever imagine going through, He'll be right there with you. Oh, friend, is it worth making a commitment to God? Sure it is. This is what lasts for eternity. This is what lasts forever. These basketball games they're playing, they're temporary. They'll have a championship. Might somebody win it. Next year they'll do it again. And then again, and again, and again. But people getting saved, that's forever. That's forever. I'll tell you this, and then we'll close tonight. I love preaching to you. You're great people to preach to. We've been here for an hour, five minutes, hour and five minutes. Super Bowl, they were there at that game for four or five hours. And then they partied all night. We come to church, give God an hour and a half. We think we've done him a big favor. We tipped God an hour and a half of our time. Hmm. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things should be added to you. Basketball. My favorite player, I used to love the NBA. I don't watch it now because they're a bunch of spoiled babies and, and uh, they don't know how to behave themselves. I, I used to love to watch Larry Bird play basketball. He was my favorite player. I met him down in Mexico. We were fishing down there with some preachers and, and Larry Bird was at the same fish camp we were at and talked to him. I got a picture made with him and he took one of my tracks, my deadline Vietnam track, went over and sat down on the front porch and read it all the way through. Not a believer, I wish that he was. Larry Bird was lay, raised in a small town in Indiana called French Lick, Indiana. 
And it's basketball country too, just like McLeansboro's basketball country. And um, Larry was raised in adverse conditions. His dad was an alcoholic. And uh, his mom and dad got divorced early in Larry's life, and his dad ended up committing suicide. And then, uh, so his mom, his mother worked two and three jobs just to put food on the table and pay the rent. I want you, I want you young people to hear this story. When Larry Bird was in the fifth grade, without any fatherly figure, or coach telling him to do so, he started going and shooting 500 free throws a day in the fifth grade. He did that all through grade school, high school, college, and most of his pro career. 500 free throws a day. It was his sophomore year, and they were playing he made the varsity team in his sophomore year, but at the very start of the season, he broke his ankle. And he was devastated. But the coach told him, said, look, you get to cast off, you get rehabilitated, get back on the team before the season's over. And sure enough, just in time for a regional play, he was able to get back on the team. And, and they, they were down by one point with a few seconds left on the clock, and the other team fouls Larry Bird. It's a one and one. There are 3,000 people in that gymnasium that night. Half of them wants him to make the baskets. Half of them wants him to miss. He goes to the free throw line and takes the ball. He dribbles a couple of times. He takes a deep breath. He shoots the first shot, and he makes it. He takes the ball. He dribbles a couple of times. He takes a deep breath. He shoots the second shot, and he makes it, and they won the game. Larry Bird's in a locker room, and a local reporter comes to him and asks him, said, Larry, what were you thinking about when you were at the free throw line shooting those two free throws? In his own 14-and-a-half-year-old vocabulary, he said, well, I was just thinking about being in my backyard shooting one of my 500 free throws that I shoot every day. It was the very next year. They were playing their arch rival in the regional championship, New Bedford, Indiana. And Larry Bird and his team are up by six points. With less than two minutes to play, it looks like they've got the game won. But Larry has a teammate by the name of Beezer. Beezer has a lot of natural ability, but he's a team clown. He's a cut-up. He's often late for a practice. And Coach Holland has told him more than one time, Beezer, one of these days, you're going to cost us a game. Beezer has the basketball, the other team fouls him. It's a one and one. If he makes both of them, they're up by eight. This game's over. He goes to the free throw line. He shoots the first shot. He misses. The other team gets the ball, goes down and scores. Beezer ends up with the basketball again, and the other team immediately fouls him. It's a one and one. If he makes both of them, they're up by six. This game's still on ice. He goes to the free throw line. He shoots the first shot. He misses. Other team gets the ball, goes down and scores. By this time, Bird and the others are trying their best to keep the ball away from Beezer. But he ended up with it again. And the other team fouled him. And yep, you guessed it. He missed the third time. The other team ties the score. And the other team eventually won the game. Beezer's in the locker room. 
He's got his head in his hands and he's crying like a little baby. And Coach Holland walks over to him and said, Beezer, I told you, one of these days, you would cost us a game. You see, with Beezer Carnes, basketball was nothing more than a convenience. If it doesn't cost too much, if there's not too many sacrifices to make, if there's not too great of a price to pay, then I'm going to play this game and I'm going to have some fun. But with Larry Bird, basketball became a way of life. It became a commitment. Would to God in our good churches across America we could find people in our churches committed to the things of God the way Larry Bird could be committed to a game. It's a game. It's basketball. This is forever. This is the most important thing on the face of the earth as far as God's concerned. I'll tell you one more sports story and then we're through. I'm going to close. I like to close. Sometimes I close several times in one sermon. You know anybody like that? Amen. It's a football story. Alabama and Auburn. They're arch rivals. They hate each other. I know people on both sides. I've got friends on both sides. And they're not joking around. They hate each other. There's one church I preached at. We were at in Alabama about eight or nine years ago. They had to quit talking about football at church because a couple of guys got into a fight in the parking lot <laughs> at God's house. This is the days of Bear Bryant. Coach Bear Bryant of Alabama and Coach Pat Dye of Auburn. Alabama's up by five points with just a little bit of time left on the clock. Looks like they got the game won. Alabama's got the ball. But Alabama's first string quarterback has been injured. And he's unable to go back in the game. Bear Bryant calls his second string quarterback. He gives him explicit instructions. You're to go out, you're to take the hike. You're to drop to the knee, you let the clock run. You're to take the hike, you let the knee run. You do that again and again, and the game's over. Well, this second string quarterback, he hasn't had his name in the newspaper. He hasn't gotten any glory for himself. And when he got out of the huddle, he disobeyed his coach, and he called a pass play. He rears back to throw the ball down the field, and sure enough, it looks like he's got a receiver wide open with score an easy touchdown. But out of nowhere comes Auburn's fastest defender and intercepts the ball and takes off running toward the other end of the field. Outran the entire Alabama team until he got to the four-yard line, four yards from a game-winning touchdown, and he was tackled by the second-string quarterback. Coach Bear Bryant and Coach Pat Dyer walking off the field, and Pat Dyer keeps saying out loud, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it. Bear Bryant looked at him and said, what don't you get? He said, that guy that intercepted that ball on my team is the fastest guy we have. That 
second string quarterback that you have has to be one of the slowest guys on your team. I don't understand how your guy could possibly catch my guy. And Bear Bryant said, let me explain it to you. Your guy was running for a touchdown. My guy was running for his life. Well, what we're running for tonight, the race that we're in, far, far more important than a touchdown. Far more important than a championship tournament. We're talking about eternity forever. Would you bow your heads tonight? Where's your level of commitment? Where is your level of commitment tonight? I want to ask you this way. I want you to be serious for a moment. Please think with me. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, 1 being the least, where's your level of commitment to the things of God? Let me ask it this way. If everyone in this church, talking especially to the members of this church right now, had the same level of commitment to the things of God that you have, where would the level of commitment for this church be at? I'm talking about church attendance. I'm talking about your Bible study. I'm talking about your prayer life. I'm talking about your witnessing. I'm talking about your giving. Where would your level of commitment be if everyone in this church was just like yours? Folks, this is not the time to play church. This is not the time to play game with God. We're living the most serious day there's ever been. The church is under attack. Things of God are under attack. Family's under attack. It's the time to stand. It's the time to be a Shadrach, a Meshach, an Abednego, a Daniel. It's the time to get in the gap and say, I don't care what it costs me. I'm gonna, I'll pay the price. I'll sacrifice. I won't embarrass you. I don't do that, friend. I, I won't even come and talk to you after the service unless you want to talk to me. But how many people in the room tonight, not just the members of this church, I'm talking to Christians all over this room. How many would say tonight, Tim, truth of the matter is my level of commitment to the things of God are not where they should be. And I don't want to play church and I don't want to play games of God. Tim, pray for me tonight that I could raise my level of commitment to a new level. Let me see your hands tonight. That's it. All over the room, hands are raised. Scores and scores, you can take them down. And I'm going to tell you what I believe would touch God as the world rushes to and fro tonight. And he looks down at this church on a Monday night, and he would see people at an altar. You say, Tim, do I have to come to the altar? Most of the time, the reasons that we don't go to altar is because of pride. I, I give a public invitation. God doesn't have any secret agents all out in the open. You say, well, what do people think if I come to the altar? What, what does it matter what they think? Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego stood. Well, everyone else bowed. Maybe tonight is your turning point in your life to say, all right, this is it. I'm going to take my level of commitment. So in a moment when we sing, I'm going to ask you to come. Just kneel at an altar and tell God what you told me when you raised your hand. You're afraid to come by yourself? Ask a friend to come with you.
Ask a family member. They'll do it. I wonder if there's some woman say, Tim, I've been saved, but I've gotten away from God. My life is messed up. It's, I'm, I can't do any good for God in the shape that I'm in. My life is messed up, and I don't know for sure what to do, but I, I don't want to waste the rest of my life. If God would give me a second chance, I want a second chance. I want to do something for God with my life. Tim, pray for me tonight that I could have these things right between me and God. Let me see your hand tonight. Just slip it up for a moment. God bless you, and God bless you. Anyone else at all? God bless you and you. You're going to take them down. Folks, listen, my God is a God. I'm a testimony of it. A second chance. Come tonight and tell God what you told me. Just say, Lord, I've blown it. I messed up. I want another chance. Please forgive me. And you come with that attitude. You're going to leave here tonight with victory in your life. You're going to leave here tonight with victory. I don't give this invitation often, but I feel led tonight. Is there a man, a young man, a teenage boy in this room tonight you believe God may be calling you to preach and you've never publicly surrendered? A man, a young man, a teenage boy, and God's calling you to preach. Maybe you don't know whether it's to be a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary. I'm not talking about full-time Christian service now. I'm talking about specifically. That's not a bad invitation to give for full-time Christian service, but I'm talking about specifically to preach the gospel. A man, a young man, a teenage boy, nobody looking. Would you just slip your hand up, make sure I can see it? Anyone at all? A man, a young man, a teenage boy, anyone at all? If you're like that tonight, God's dealing with you, you come. Tell your pastor, tell Pastor Jacob tonight that you believe God's calling you to preach. I want him to know who you are. I preached to Christians. That was the intent of this message. But the greatest commitment that was ever made was when God gave us his son to hang on an old rugged cross 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. Jesus hung on that cross and suffered and bled and died. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died for you and for me to pay the price for our sin. The only way that we could pay for our sins would be to be separated from God for all eternity in a horrible place called hell. You can be saved tonight, friend. You can leave this building with your sins forgiven on your way to heaven. Would you let me pray for you? And again, no one's going to embarrass you at all. There's nobody on the platform looking. There's no one in the balcony looking. It's me and God. How many would say, Tim, the truth of the matter is I'm not for sure that if I were to die right now that I would go to heaven and I certainly don't want to go to hell and I want you to pray for me. Anyone like that at all? Just slip your hand up for a moment. Make sure I see it. God bless you, buddy. Anyone else? You can take your hand down. Anyone else at all? Tim, I'm not 100% for sure. If I died, I'd go to heaven. I want you to pray for me husband, a wife, mom, dad, teenager, young person, young adult, anyone at all besides this one. Young man, this could be the greatest day of your life. You want to be saved, you come tonight. You'll never be sorry. Christians, this is your service. God intended this for this Monday night, for you and for me to take our level of commitment. Let's stand our feet. Everyone that's able to stand, my brother begins to sing. You begin to come. Come on, folks. Let's do some business with God here on this Monday night. Come on right now. No hesitation. Just slip out of your seat. Say, I'm going to go with God.
Don't care what anybody says or thinks. I'm going to go with God. Come on right now. No play in church. No play in game. Come and get along with God. You don't have to tell me anything, but come and tell God. Come and tell God tonight. I see people come with tears of brokenness. This touches the heart of God. This touches God tonight. Commitment. God bless you. We're going to sing one more verse. This is it. I don't have long invitation. One more verse. Come on, and then we're going to pray together tonight. Just stay at the altar while we pray here in a moment. Just remain at the altar for a moment and then we're all going to pray together in a few minutes. Sing it with him. Turn your eyes. Folks, just stay here for a moment if you will. We're going to pray together in just a minute. heads are bowed and Christians are praying folks at the altar just stay for a moment because I want us to pray together and we're going to just tell God together tonight that we want to take our level of commitment to a higher level and, and then if you're away from God tonight just tell him Lord I'm coming home I don't want to mess around I don't want to I, I, want, to, I want to be real I want to be transparent I want to be serious Father, thank you for speaking to hearts. A great spirit in this place tonight. You're working in the lives of your people. And God, before we can expect a great harvest of lost people coming to Jesus, we've got to get real with you. We've got to get serious. We're not going to have a burden for our family and friends and neighbors if we're playing church, if we're playing games. God, let this be a turning point in so many lives tonight. They look back at this night and say, I made a decision for God that night that I was going to sell out to him. Lock, stock, and barrel. Completely, totally. I'm not going to worry what my friends think. I'm not going to worry what my family says. I'm certainly not going to worry about what this world says. I'll live for Jesus. I'll make my life count for him. And Lord, I pray that in the next two nights of this revival crusade, that we would see lost people come to Jesus because of what you're doing in our lives right now. We get so burdened about our families and our friends and our neighbors. Not only are we going to be talking it, but we're going to be walking it. We're going to be living it. Bless every one of these that came tonight. And all those that raised their hands, maybe others that didn't come. I pray you would take it, we'd take it to a new level. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen. Give these folks a big hand. Let them get back to their seat tonight. Let them know you're happy for them and encouraging them. You can be seated for just a brief moment. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a very brief announcement. 
They mention the offering. I often do this in our services, so don't feel uh, offended at all. I do this everywhere I go. I know I'm a hometown boy, but you won't know how to uh, uh, respond if you don't hear from me. We have five employees. We're involved in a lot of different facets of ministry. It takes a lot of money to run our ministry to do what we do. They're going to receive the offering. Is there a box out there? What is it, Pastor? There's three plates back in the back. And so somebody can direct you there. You'll find them. And then uh, write the check, write a check, make it out to 10 Mile Baptist Church. They'll give our ministry a check on Wednesday night then. Then the table, the product table, I've got my book, Born on the 5th of July. July, if you don't have it, you want to get it. All that money goes to our marine events. I'm not going to take the time tonight Tell you all about it again. I'll maybe do it Wednesday night. But all that money goes to a whole separate uh, fund for our marine events. Connie will be there. Uh, there's other things on the table. You can write a check. You can put on a major credit card. Of course, you pay cash as well. And I'll slip off and I'll be back. You don't have to buy anything to come to the table. Don't ever uh, feel like that, all right? Tomorrow night and then Wednesday night. Wednesday night. I'm going to preach a message or that we probably have more people say than any other message that I preach. So, if you were listening to me, when I just said what I said, something should have registered with you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. I said, I, well, the message I preach on Wednesday night, we have more people say, but let me tell you something, lost people can't get saved Wednesday night if they're not here. Somebody has to invite them. Somebody has to go out to the fields and a white to harvest and bring them in. And then we let the Holy Spirit do his job. I don't save anybody. You can't save anybody. God does the saving. But he does expect us to go out and compel them to come. So Wednesday night, we could see a great, great, great harvest of souls. Think right now of someone that you could text or email or call or see tomorrow and invite them to come with you. Tomorrow night and Wednesday night as well. Thank you so much. God bless you, Pastor. We just would like to thank you for watching today's sermon. And we pray that it has been a blessing and an encouragement in your walk with Jesus Christ. Today, as you have been listening to this sermon, maybe you have been thinking the Holy Spirit's been working that I'd like to know more about Jesus. I'm not sure if I've ever been saved. Please reach out and contact us. We would love to share the gospel with you, pray with you with whatever's going on in your life. Or maybe you are a believer, but yet you've got some spiritual battles that you've just not been able to conquer. We'd love to join you in that battle. So please reach out to us. We would love and are waiting to hear from you. May God richly bless you in Jesus' name.